Ben Mole. Benjamin Mole, I really enjoyed talking with Ben. Uh, Sustaining Sport is his podcast. He, you know, he's a great lover of sport, you know, as am I, as of many of us. But there are some, you know, improvements that need to be made you know, in sustainability and inequality and race, gender, etc. Where we see, you know, uh, we, the very first question I ask is sport washing. I wonder if you know what that is. Just kind of see the abuse of money and uh, in sports and the Olympics and FIFA and the World Cup and, and many of these uh, events, these large events. But we talk about he's dedicated, you know, uh, his podcast to talking to people about sustainability in sports. It's a great podcast. I really, really enjoyed talking to Ben. He's a young man. He's in the UK now. He's from South Africa originally. He has master's in Sweden in sustainability. Just a very impressive young man. Uh, I look forward to meeting him you know, face-to-face one day. He is a Liverpool fan, which I do not hold uh, against him as I am a City fan. Uh, but uh, really, really great conversation with Ben. You're going you're gonna to love it. The, the topics which we challenge each other on a lot of great topics in sport and gambling and, and women in sports and racism it's a great conversation i hope to continue it um, in the future you're going to like this conversation with ben Moore. thanks for listening hi i'm joey pins people ask me how did i lose 130 pounds the quick answer is always discipline i started my business wasn't paying attention to my health eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic. I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Uh, ben Mole, thank you so much for doing this. I'm very excited. I'm a big fan of your podcast. What is sport washing? I mean, what what a question to start. Sports washing is the use of the positive elements of sport, the sort of camaraderie, the emotion, the team building, all of that positive side of sport uh, being used to cover, shall we say, nefarious or not so good activities. The most quintessential example is, you know, some kind of very unsustainable company like an oil company or something like that, knowing that they have no customer facing sort of brand value. They will pay a sports team to sort of, you know, link their brands together and then Mm. slowly but surely sort of subtly um, link those two things together. So you often then end up thinking of the sports team when you think of the brand rather than their nefarious activities in the background. Very interesting. And you 
also likened it to the Olympics. Yes. I, I mean, the Olympics is perhaps the best case of it because it's such a uh, a powerful, you know, event. It really brings together people. It, it uh, sort of uh, pushes forward sports that you would not normally watch under a sort of national flag. It really gets the best out of the the fan emotions and, you know, tells these very lovely uh, stories of athletes performing at the highest level. But then when you look at particularly the lot of the sponsorship, there's a lot of stuff going wrong behind the scenes that you're like, oh, hang on, that I would not be normally uh, comfortable with. Mm. And if that was... Uh, happening in its own right you would be you would call it out but because it's behind this veil of glamour and fanfare and excitement around the olympics we don't um yeah we don't always see it yeah and you went on to such great fascinating detail about sochi specifically and also of course in china but sochi how is estimated i don't forget the numbers 20 billion and it came out to 60 billion but half the half the money was criminalized or covered up and put into politicians pockets and just horrible. Yes. I mean, Sochi is the, I say the gold standard of, um, uh, you know, dubious sports organization. And I think it's when, so the episode you're referring to of my podcast actually came out last year before obviously whatever's going on in, in, uh, Ukraine with Russia now. So I can speak perhaps even more candidly about, um, Vladimir Putin and, and his, and his sort of, um, uh, the sort of, crew that he's got running there in terms of, you know, completely put the, the Russian political establishment is very well entrenched in, you know, embezzling public money and all of these kind of things. And the, the Sochi um, Winter Olympics was the perfect example of that, where they, you know, ran up just ignominant fees, um, doing all kinds of things that weren't necessarily necessary. And also this very little paper trail of where the money went. So yeah, the mm -hmm. final figure came out to, I think, 51 billion was spent on that Olympics. But we didn't get 51 billion of out products. So where did the money go? Um, and then you suddenly see Russian oligarchs running around with very fancy houses all over the world. And you're like, I wonder where the money came mm. from. Hmm. Interesting. But I do hear cases like, um, like, I don't remember when Greece got the Olympics, but I remember them, you know, they, they had to increase their, their, uh, you know, their, their train system and their, you know, their, uh, their infrastructure had to increase to actually support the Olympics. So they use the Olympics as a way of, you know, elevating what they had. So I think sometimes there's, there's, it's not all bad. I guess my point is, is that you, you see it where it's actually used in good, where it's actually helping the community after the event leaves, it'll sustain the community for a long time as well. Yes. I, and I think you, you know, you raise a very good point around there's not not everyone is a bad actor, shall we say. And that's right. almost the greater tragedy of sports washing and using sport for nefarious means is that a lot of sort of hardworking, innocent people get sort of, um, you know, pushed to one side. Uh, and on top of that, that potential real, like, you know, long-term potential good is also often ruined. And I think the best example of that is probably Barcelona. The summer games in Barcelona, they they really looked at their long-term infrastructure. They said, all right, what are we going to, how can we, you know, put in a metro system, for example, that'll stand the test of time and use that sort of um, the Olympics as a catalyst for positive, you know, infrastructure construction rather than just a, a short one. Greece, is a mixed example. They did do a little bit of infrastructure improvement, which is good, but particularly their sports infrastructure was over the top and unnecessary and has been uh, abandoned since. Um, really? You know, 
Yeah, it's, and you know, it's it's a, sort of a, an argument against really doing the Olympics in too many different places in the first place. You just don't often need Olympic standard swimming pools um, in you know hundreds of countries around the world. They just can't. They don't need it. Um, so yes, I know for these upcoming games, they're really kind of learning from the errors of their ways and Paris is supposed to be the, the, going to be the most sustainable Olympics in terms of either upgrading pre-existing facilities or designing facilities for the long term. But it's a bit silly that it's taken this long for the Olympics to realize that, uh, if I'm honest. You know, people were calling for these kind of changes in the mid-90s and here we are, still haven't fully cracked it. And why are they making the changes now? I do think a little bit of that um, research, the research caught up with them. There's a couple of... Uh, really well-known um, academics who've spent the best, basically, basically the best part of 20 years f- like showing how this uh, Olympic infrastructure model was so unsustainable and that, you know, it was always for short-term gain and to bet short-term gain and to benefit the individuals in power at the time and that it didn't have to be that way. And it was, it's like any sort of issue. You have to raise awareness. You have to get sort of, you know, even fans to be aware of what's going on um, to start putting pressure on those in power, because if there's no pressure on them, they will keep, shall we say, milking their, um, their cash cow as long as possible. Mm. And had we not called, had no one called out the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, um, I'm pretty convinced they would have continued to do unsustainable Olympics whilst also in, you know, often um, profiting for themselves and mm. profiting for the few uh, corrupt individuals in these countries that they pick. Um, that that was also a funny trend is for a long time they did the Olympics in a lot of European countries and eventually they realized, hang on, a lot of um, European countries and obviously the United States, et cetera, have checks and balances. So then they started going to places like... Um, uh, Brazil and the an allegory for this is also the FIFA World Cup. They started going to nations that were wealthy that could afford this kind of thing, but didn't have the same judicial system, the same checks and balances. Um, so yeah, the, the the more you read into this, the more you realize you know there's a couple of people who benefited hugely in these host countries, and often the citizens on the ground really suffered. Mm. Yeah, and you 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 make no bones about uh, your your view on FIFA as well, how they don't have the best track record of putting money into the right hands. And here we have a case where now the, the World Cup's going to be in Qatar uh, and there's you know some issues there that people have. I wonder what your feeling on that is. Yeah, I mean, I think Qatar is the sort of perfect example of how they are going purely for the money and not, mm. for no, nothing else. I mean, Qatar has never, as a nation, even qualified for a World Cup. You know, we, they can't say this. They're going to the sort of heartland of soccer or football as a sport. Um, their argument is off, always to sort of say, oh, we're developing the sport in the region. But I mean, just off the top of my head, I could pick a thousand you know, um, different examples of places they could have gone to actually benefit a region, you know, bring up the footballing culture that's that's there and have a, a really amazing tournament. And they did not pick those countries because those countries could not afford the, um, yeah, the money that needed to change hands. Um, and, you know, before I, any of your audience think I'm sort of biased and talking down to any of these countries, I am from South Africa and I know for a fact my own country of South Africa had to pay a bribe to get FIFA to... Um, take the world cup there there was you know this is this there's some very strong evidence around this that it was in the fifa needed a world cup in africa and the call was between south africa and morocco and at the last minute um the south africans came up with a, a healthier bribe for the fifa officials mm. um so yeah it's all it's funny how blatant the the corruption is at times I mean, Qatar doesn't even have the stadiums. They had to build four or five stadiums. It, 
usually we have the World Cup in, in our summer, the Northern Hemisphere summer, in June and July. It's got to be moved now to November because the average temperature in Fahrenheit is 115 degrees in the summer. So they're making, you know, they're making these open air stadiums. It's an open roof in a hundred, you know, de- you know, degrees where they, you know, there's some technology that they can still keep it cool, but they had to put so much money in again, like you said, they've never qualified for a world cup. Uh, but we have this case where they're just this oil rich country. And, and I also hear that people are flying to the UAE staying there and it's less expensive to fly to the games and fly back uh, because of the hotel prices. Uh, it, it, there's just, it, there's just seems so much, it just seems so obvious, like you said, that what they're doing this for and why. Yes, uh, I'd say, you know, a, a country that probably could have hosted the World Cup overnight was somewhere like Australia, where they have big stadiums and everything was built in. So had FIFA's objective been sustainability, they could have gone somewhere like Australia. Mm. Um, the, as you mentioned, they have clearly gone as far from sustainability as possible, building brand new stadiums. It's too hot there most of the year anyway, so they're having to shift the entire um, soccer schedule to fit that in. Some of the stadiums are going to have air conditioning in. I mean, you, you think about the resources and the infrastructure yes. required to air condition an open air stadium they're gonna have these big fans at field level that pump in cold air and the, the, so the hot air goes up and i'm like oh my goodness um it yeah and, and then the other issue that has to be raised is uh even though there's so much money going around building these brand new stadiums is expensive so how do they afford to do it they exploit um a lot of migrant labor and there's been you know Abs- amnesty international reported there's been uh, over four thousand deaths of migrant undocumented migrant workers who've died on the construction of these stadiums and, you know, if you like, oh, it's not our fault, not our problem. I'm like, what do you mean it's not your problem? Surely you have to check if the country can afford to build the stadiums in a non-exploitive way before you give them the host right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, because the next World Cup is going to be in North America. So it's being split between the U.S., Canada and Mexico. And I... I can't see North America here. I'm in the States building new stadiums. We're going to just use the current stadiums we have. Uh, but it, it just seems so it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because I'm, I'm a lover of sport as are you. And um, there's just so much improvement. The last your last episode was just, was wonderful with this, you know, this, this woman, Holly Morgan, she, She's a she's a you know a footballer there in the United Kingdom, and what she faced. We have an issue here where uh, the women's soccer sued FIFA, and they they just won within the last month or two, I believe, and they were they were awarded some money. But just the inequality of of female of women in sport is something that you talk about a lot as well, Ben. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think FIFA uh, is a good example of it, but you'll find this all uh, up and down the organizations running a lot of sport. There is very little representation of what I would call genuine, um, dare I say even genuine sports fans, you know, with loads of the officials running these things are often, you know, from business backgrounds, from finance backgrounds. There's a lot of, dare I say, you know, former Swiss bankers running these organizations, mm-hmm. but most of them are men. And I'm like, you know, this is not what this game, at least, you know, particularly in the case of soccer is about. Soccer is historically a working class sport. It's a sport that exists across all cultures around all like the world. Um, and it, you know, really brings people together. And they've really been for a long time, the gatekeepers of, of this, of the, of the beautiful game 
at that sort of global level. So I, I really applaud the um, US women's team for standing up and saying, listen, this is our side of the game is being underappreciated. It's being underrepresented and we demand some kind of change. Um, my, it was actually my first podcast episode was about uh, women's football. And the issue that people often raise when it comes to women's football uh, uh, is, oh, not enough people go to the games. That's why uh, there's not enough money in the sport. That's why they get paid less. And I'm like, okay, but it's a chicken and the egg situation. Why didn't less people go to the games in the first place? And I had sort of this, I had this kind of like mind breaking um, moment when I was still living in Sweden a couple of years ago, and it was the Women's World Cup. And Sweden is quite a gender equal country, yes. and they and, and they really get behind their women's team. And you know, came down to the the town square during I think it was the semi final game. Sweden women taking on uh, I think it was Denmark. They were playing. They had a big screen up in the in the middle of the town square. The seats were packed, and I'm like. This it's not about the fact that it's either the men's team or the women's team playing. It's about that the national team is playing, and it's fun to watch and it's exciting to watch. So you know, if more and more people just sort of realize that the 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 narrative behind um, women's soccer is as good as the narrative behind men's soccer, we'd get behind it. But yeah, you have to convince the gatekeepers of that before any kind of meaningful change will happen, and that's what the U.S. women's team has been after for so long. It's true. You know, I I've played you know, football, soccer, my, my whole life. I, I have two daughters. I've co I coach them. So I'm a bit biased in that. I love the women's game. Uh, you, you, I think it was your first podcast or where you went on about that there was a bunch of trolls, you know, and social media talking bad again, it's just horrible. And, you know, you'll have these kind of, um, you, I think you, your term you use is like college kind of dude bros kind of, you know, mm. mentality is just horrible, but you'll, you'll, you'll have that. And, but lovers of the game will still appreciate it. You know, they'll still love it. I always kind of question here in the States, you have fans of players and teams, but not really fans of the sport. I think there's a big difference there. You know, uh, I, I love to watch soccer at all levels. I, I enjoy it. It's something I like. Uh, with some other sports, I like the particular team and not really, you know, I like the game as well, but not as much as I like the team. So I wonder if there's some overlap there. But as far as women, we have it, we have it pretty, we have it good here in the States. We have a high level of basketball, high level of soccer. We have something called, Title Eight, I think it is, where you, the colleges have to pay equal to men and women, uh, but there's just so much room for improvement. But then there's just other countries who don't have even close to that as well, and you see such a disparity when when some of these countries play each other uh, because they just don't have a lot of the of the the youth. They don't have a lot of the money going into the women's programs. Yes. I mean, the U.S. has actually provided us with a very good case study of why the women's game can be so successful, mm -hmm. because often men in the U.S. play other sports, for example, NFL and basketball, etc. So it, it's in contrast to a lot of other countries, women were sort of given soccer as to sort of say, OK, this is your this is your mm -hmm. sport. And they've obviously taken that. And you can see that in the strength of the national team for year after year after year. So that's a nice little case study of saying, hang on, if we do actually give women full support to attempt to you know, be good at the sport and enjoy the sport from a young age, what will happen? Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I can't, I can't say for sure whether or not the women's game will be ever as popular as the men's game, but I'm not sure that's even that important. The point, right. the point is that they need to be given their fair shot over, we're talking decades here, you know, how many women give up football at age five or six because they're told, oh, that's a boy's sport. 
And I'm like, no, that's not unacceptable. They should be they're allowed to pursue it as long as they wish and feel no external barriers to that to that um, that pursuit. And yeah, after maybe two or three decades, couple of generations, we will definitely see an improvement in the women's game and just a more fair representation of what um, how women can you know perform at that level and provide that level of entertainment. Because above all, sports should be fun and entertaining. Certainly so. And here in the U.S., we also have a, a whole college system that's used as, you know, as a farm system oftentimes for, you know, the professional league. And I don't think any other countries do it this way. And once again, the, the money gets in the way. But we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, great basketball and soccer programs at the collegiate level here. Uh, and, you know, they get they get noteworthy and we, we have very, you know, big stars in the women's game, Sue Bird, you know, Megan Rapinoe and uh, many like that, that we all know here, but it's that at the college level, again, there's lots of money there, but that kind of prepares and kind of makes the public aware of them as well. I, I, I don't know if that's as popular as it is in Europe or in South Africa where, you know, the, the semi-pro or below the pro is, it gets enough notoriety. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I can. So South Africa actually has a rare a similarity to the United States in that way around the game of rugby. South Africa and rugby are, you know, inter intertwined as any country and any sport can be. And for us, it's less, I mean, there is a very big college level, uh, same with rugby, but for us, it's even at the high school level. Schools are often judged much more on their rugby team performance than um their academic performance, which huh. I think is, which I think is a big mistake because, yeah. you know, you go to school to learn not to play rugby. Rugby should be that the after school thing. Um, but it does have the byproduct of producing, you know, South Africa has probably, you know, the best short of maybe New Zealand as well, given, especially given their population, but they have the best sort of grassroots rugby, um, production of players of anywhere in the world. I do think there, as I say, there are benefits to that system, but there are also downsides. And this is definitely the case in the United States where a lot of people hang their hat potentially on making it as a professional sports person. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, the consequences are pretty drastic because you're left with not a lot of uh, transferable skills or backup options. So I always think that sport should be you know, you should be provided that avenue to potentially succeed in a sport and prove your talent or test yourself. But it can never be all in because it wonders if you don't make it. Hmm. Is women's rugby popular? It's getting there. Um, again, that culture has overlapped, but it, it's not been there for many, many years. Um, I, I do think women's rugby has sort of hit a bit of a renaissance in the last probably five years, um, even especially here in the UK, that for many years there was a sort of uh, a lot of unofficial women's teams doing, you know, sort of, I don't want to say semi-pro because they were the best of the game, but uh, women's teams without a lot of support and in the last five to ten years they've received a lot more support and you're seeing that you know crowd attendances are going up the standard of rugby is going up um all of those same things you get in terms of the bringing together the the fans around it you know the national flag for example you it, it all comes through so uh, again another case study of how it can can improve i really enjoy the way the english premier has you know they don't do it here but they have the men's team and then they have the women's team. I, I, I don't know if this is going to flavor the rest of our conversation, Ben, but I'm a, I'm a city fan. Oof, <laughs> dangerous <laughs> territory. Dangerous okay. territory. I apologize. I, I thought you should know before we go any further. No, full disclosure. Uh, <laughs> full disclosure. It's good. <laughs> good. Um, they played yesterday, and of course, Liverpool plays UEFA today. Uh, but, but they have uh, 
you know, they have city has the men's team and the women's team, uh, and you know, the same uniforms. I don't think they play in the same stadium though. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, they don't except for sometimes for big games they do because the men's st- stadium is bigger. So, um, bigger. yeah. Yeah. And that's certainly a way of doing it. How, uh, how is the popularity of that, of, of women, of, of women's uh, English Premier League there in the UK? So the, what you mentioned there is a, it's actually a massive catch-22, and I, I've been reflecting on this recently, and I, I actually have no solution for it. But basically, the women's teams that are attached to a men's team, particularly a successful men's team, do better because they have more money um, and better branding. So they sort of gain fans, perhaps, you know, in an external fashion. But there are still a few women's teams that are not attached to a men's team, and they struggle because they're sort of in the... But, but in the footballing ether, if I can say it that way, mm. um, which is a bit unfair because basically what happens is if a, if, a, if a men's team does particularly well and you know has a couple of years of success and gains some fans, that women's team, even if it's playing badly, will benefit. Whereas if mm. a women's team is playing quite well when one of their rivals is attached to a men's team. So it is quite a difficult thing. But as I say, I, I don't really have a solution for that. I just think it's, you know, we, we as humans quite, quite naturally brand orientated so yeah yeah i'd say even i when it comes to um getting into watching more women's football i I quite naturally skewed towards watching the liverpool women's side uh and yes there's my disclosure of the podcast i'm a liverpool fan yeah yeah i hope they i hope they win today i love love watching them so it's interesting so the thing i love most about the english premier league of course the the i think the highest level of soccer in the planet but you know relegation i mean we if there was relegation in the NFL, I don't know what would happen to our society here. It might collapse. I, the thought that three of the bottom teams in the NFL were not in the NFL anymore, I, I, I don't know what would happen. But that's wonderful uh, that it does. Is that the same thing on the women's side? Yes. And actually, as an example of that, the Liverpool women's team uh, a couple of years ago got relegated and they've only just recently in this last couple of weeks been prom- So next season, they'll be back into the top division. So they got promoted. So yeah, it is. Um, they still have the relegation in the women's side. Unfortunately, with the women's, you know, there's just less teams and less teams at that level. So the leagues are smaller and there's not as many leagues, but yeah, they still have their relegation system. Um, and yeah, it's, it is an important element of the way that the sport is played. And I'm not sure if you heard about it last year, but that they attempted that thing called the super league where they were going to take the top six teams or something across the top five leagues in Europe and put them in an unrelegated league just to play on for all eternity. And all of the fans said, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. It was amazing how quickly that got squashed. It was, I heard about it. And then you hear, you know, you hear Ronaldo and you hear a couple of the players kind of peep up and not, not liking the idea. And then uh, it's just, it was so transparent money grab, you know, the parents, the, I think the, the fans, the supporters just saw right through it. Yes, I mean, it obviously links back to our earlier conversation about money in sport and the gatekeepers. And yeah, these these owners basically saw, they see their football teams as not as, you know, what I would call beloved entities, like a lot of the fans see it, but as assets. And they were like, how do I solidify my investment? Oh, let me put my team out of this potential relegation situation and put it in an untouched sort of golden goose situation. And the fans are like, but that's not why, that's not what it makes it fun. I was actually reading a very interesting, um, sorry, it was it was a presentation. I was at a conference recently and a, um, a Greek professor of all, of all places was giving this presentation on the importance of being able to lose in terms of the excitement of a game. And I can't remember the exact figures, but it was something like, if you have 
less than a sort of 30% chance of winning every game. If you're, that's the fans' expectation of their team, they will start losing interest because it's a bit too boring. But mm. if your team has over a 90% chance of winning every game, it's the same thing. You get a bit bored because you're like, there's no stakes here. Whereas in somewhere in that sweet spot, and they said roughly about 60%, if you, have a, if you think you have a 6 out of 10 chance of winning this game, that is when your excitement level as a fan is at the most because you mm. know that there's 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 some stakes on the line here. Your team could lose. You could be knocked out. You could be eliminated. You could be relegated. But you're hopeful that that won't happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's amazing. If you win, it's amazing. So they, they, there needs to be you you need to be able to lose in order to enjoy winning. Hmm. I think that's why the the NFL the the football league here in the states is the most popular. There's just there's just always anybody can really beat anybody at any time. There's only you know. 15, 16 games. Uh, is there a salary cap? I would just have some general EPL questions. So one, one concept I can never explain to my friends here um, that I try to get involved in the English Premier League is the loaning of players. Like a team can kind of loan a, t- a player off to another team. Do you know how this works and why? Yes, so th- that's been a long sort of standing um, element of, of the league system. And it definitely has some benefits. The main benefit is if you assigning a player but who might not be good enough yet for your team but you're hopeful that they one day will be you send them off to potentially a lower league side and they gain some of that match experience um and you know then hopefully come back the season later and they're better unfortunately it definitely has been abused i think the worst club for doing this has been chelsea where they famously have had you know at any point sort of 40 50 60 players out on loan so you can't really argue okay this is a player they're really thinking about and you know only two or three of them would actually end up making it back to the side um so yeah and then there's this downside of if the, the team that they loan it to gives that player a lot of nurturing, a lot of coaching and really does well, that team doesn't actually benefit in the long term because Chelsea just take their asset back. So yes, it's gone a bit uh, too far. And um, there's also some interesting stories around the expectations that come out of you know players who probably weren't good enough at the beginning with, but just get signed by Chelsea just in case, then have that expectation on their shoulders of being a Chelsea player when they probably were never actually going to be that good. And then when they don't make it as a Chelsea player, they feel really sad. They often get depression, all these kinds of negative things. But if they were just signed by a for example, a League Two side in the first place, they would have probably had a quite a successful career. So it's this weird emotional roller coaster that some of these mm. players go on. And does the team pay for them that's getting them? It depends on the deal. Often they do. So I suppose you could argue the lower lead side is benefiting from having a good player and not right. having to pay the salary, but not always. Um, and to your previous question, there is no salary cap. So players, I think, I don't know who the most paid player is in the Premier League, but I, I know ballpark figure. It's roughly, I think the most paid player in the Premier League is getting about £390,000 a week. So... Yeah, there's money in sport, I promise you. Yeah, there certainly is. And that we don't have anything like that loan system here. And I remember when City was going to get messy and they were talking about three hundred and fifty million for four years or something. It was just uh, the highest paid player right now, I believe, in the US is Mahomes, and he's getting five hundred million for ten years US. Wow. But I still think there's there's bigger contracts there uh, in Europe, but and there's a lot of incentives there as well. So the natural the natural next topic, Ben, is men are getting paid all this money. 
and just the contrast to women. I mean, it's not even close to what, what what's happening there. Yes, and and yeah, you you raise that that perfect point. Talk about incentives, right? You know, if a young boy growing up and he's like, oh, I could maybe earn you know a couple hundred thousand a week one day if I make it in this sport. That's a that's an incentive that'll drive you to that training pitch and make sure you're going there. Whereas a woman will look at the top paid athletes in on on her side of the game and be like. Oh, I can barely make, you know, some of them right. are getting, I, I, I had this stat from my, my first episode. It was that the average salary in the men's, in the men's premier league was about 3 million a year. That's the average. So obviously some are getting paid less, some are getting paid more. Whereas mm. the average salary in the women's is about 18,000 pounds a year, which is only just above minimum wage. It's not, it's a, it's a tiny amount of money. And obviously players in the women's league getting paid less than that. Um, or sometimes not getting paid at all, or having to do second jobs to just, you know, sponsor their career essentially. So, as you say, it's a completely unbalanced incentive uh, system. Um, and yeah, I mean, to bring it back to your conversation about the US and their system, I do think the US systems have some big mistakes. But one of the things I do admire is the draft. I do think that's such a good way of equalizing things every year that the best player doesn't go to the wealthiest team, but just goes to the often the worst team and yes. makes that the worst team good. That's a very interesting point. There's nothing like that. There's no draft in the EPL. Nope. The player, like the, the best players, can just go to the highest bidder, basically. So then, obviously, the best players go to the highest bidder. The highest bidder often wins, gets more sponsorship, gets more money, buys the best players, and round and round we go. Wow. Yeah. The other thing, of course, it's hard for U.S. Uh, to, to you know the U.S. sports fan to grasp is there's no playoffs in the EPL. It's just whoever has the most points wins. Yes. Well, it's tricky because there are these two tournaments simultaneously. It's the Champions League at the top end and, and the Premier League. And also they are slightly less um, sought after, but then there's there's a FA Cup and there's the League Cups and those are both knockouts. But yes, the league itself is purely um, purely sort of league-based. There is no playoff, but it's often, it's funny how occasionally it does come down to the last day. And I'm sure you as a City fan will remember 2011, it came down to the last about 45 seconds. So, sure did. yeah, and it's and it's very close right now. I mean, between Liverpool and City, I think they're one point apart. If I'm not yes, mistaken. yes, um, yeah. and that is what makes a league good. And I think actually, leagues around Europe are suffering from having too many one horse races. The most famous one, I think, is now Bayern Munich that have just won ten in a row, and like it's not even close. Um, and it is a big problem for the league as a whole because people are just not interested anymore. It's that same thing I said to you about the expectation of your team winning. If all of the other teams in the league know that they have a 0% chance of winning the league that year, they're going to lose interest in watching that that sport. Absolutely. And what one thing that Germany does, which is, correct me if I have this wrong, Ben, but most of the teams, the, the town has a percentage of ownership. Yes. So the fans, uh, like the fan group basically owns 51% of the club so that the majority ownership, so they do have a lot more control of the future of their clubs compared to uh, the English league. And I love that system, but unfortunately mm. that system only really works if everyone does it. So a lot of the German teams then get um, their players pinched looking for, you know, bigger salaries to places like England that have bigger salaries and none of this, yeah. what I would call fan fan justified fan control, but often fan limiting control. Um, so yeah, the German teams suffer as a whole, but I, I think it's a more moral way of doing things. And I wish every league in Europe did that the same way. We only have one team in the NFL. It's the t it's um, Green Bay Packers that are. Uh, I don't think it's majority, but they do have, you know, a stock and say in what happens. And I don't know why 
well, I know why other teams don't do it. Just like you said, because eventually money gets in the way, you know, um, your, your podcast, sustainable sport and, you know, what, what your, your theme is, Ben, and it's, it's, it's really, really noble. And the first, first podcast, you kind of, I can sense you kind of torturing yourself over how can I be better? How can I help this situation? What can I do to, um, you know, to help this, the inequality, the racism, the, the sexism, uh, uh, the, the, the flying of airplanes to different, you know, countries and uh, what can we do better? I mean, where, where are you with that, with that challenge? I mean, that's, that that's, that's a, perhaps a perfect question. If I can say it that way, it is, it has been a, a difficult couple of years trying to basically bring together my absolute, dare I say, you know, a love slash obsession um, with sport in general, and just, mm. you know, a love affair with all the good sides of sport and trying to, yeah, justify that juxtaposition of all of this bad stuff that goes around it. And I do, I still believe in sport. I still believe in its best possible version, but it's going to be such a fight to get it there. You do have to regularly and 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 um, incessantly speak truth to power and try and keep the people with the keys to the castle in check or else they will exploit it for their own ends. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, as sports fans, uh, it's our right to some degree of 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 you know asking for the best of from our owners of our sports teams because I've as I've always said there's there is the ownership of the sports team from a financial perspective but no sports team is anything without its fans so even though we don't have a financial ownership we have that um, emotional ownership and yeah it has been a difficult journey trying to almost justify that um, I think. <laughs> I've I've had to pull back on certain topics, perhaps dare I say, for my mo own mental health. Uh, huh. Back in back back in December, I did a series of pieces on gambling and like yes. you know the pretty dark world of of uh, sports betting. Um, and yeah, I, I basically I was going to do a six episode series. After four episodes, I just called it quits because I was so deep in this quagmire of reading about you know how every single thing is about money and there's so much problem with gambling addiction and yes this this and I was like right you know I'm just going to close the book on that for a few months and come back to it. Yeah, I listened to those and um, I, you, you did you did a tremendous job and you could just tell the the wealth of, of, of knowledge you gain from it. And I just, I, I don't, I'm not a gambler. Uh, I do. I, I, I know that there's a lot of money in gambling. Of course, I, I happen to play golf and I, I, you know, I would, I would submit that, you know, the majority of golfers aren't golfers, they're gamblers. Right. Uh, um, and per perhaps that's the same way in other sports. And I happened to be in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago at a, at a technology event. And I just kind of took a long turn and I see these huge televisions and all these, you know, gambling, you know, well, it's Las Vegas, that's what they do. But I, I was fortunate. I was able to watch the city game, which I was happy about, but uh, it's so pervasive and it's, it's such a part of, of what happens in sport. And I don't, I, I don't know if we'll ever get away from it. Those that do it, that, that don't have a problem is one thing, but gambling is a serious addiction and a serious issue is to a serious issue to this, to so many. It's, it's just a terrible thing. Yes. And it, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very hidden addiction, right? Because it's not a mm -hmm. substance per se. People often forget about it, that it's exactly as, um, it can be as exactly as pervasive as anything like, you know, some hard drug addictions or something like that, where, you know, you are, you are literally rewiring re your brain to, you know, your dopamine um, receptors and all of that kind of system of your brain, your reward system of your brain 
to seek the, that kind of um, you know reward and play uh, cycle. And you know you have this. Um, you hear stories of people who um, you know, for example, steal from their wife, for example, or, or steal from their parent, or steal, steal steal from their child because they need to get. Uh, they need to play their next hand. And what that is, is not actually a, a creative morality in their head. It's that the actual chemicals in their head have been um, out, put out of balance, that they get a stronger reward rush, so to speak, from placing another bet than they would from being a good husband or being a good wife. And, you know, when you get to that level, and of course, that is not the majority of people, it's the minority, but everyone is running that risk. That is that is terrifying. If I'm honest, that is absolutely terrifying. And it's that classic thing of the gambling companies will say, "Oh, but you know, there's very few gambling addicts." But you know, even if the odds are like one in ten, can you say to someone, "Okay, do you want to risk one in like you want to go do this thing?" And there's a there's a ten percent chance that in thirty years you're gonna start be you're gonna be stealing money from your wife or husband because you because your life becomes that. And again, what is the solution? I'm not saying cancel all gambling. I think there's mm. a part of it that's part of human nature, and you know, we can't get rid of and I also don't think we can we can take gambling entirely out of sport. There's too much a natural linkage there. But I always argue in favor of good, solid regulation and education. Make sure that everyone is educated about the risks. Everyone is educated about some of the tricks of the trade. And that's what I tried my episodes of the podcast to do. And then go place your bet. And you're so much more protected from running down that rabbit hole of, oh, you placed your bet, you lost, you knew why you lost, and you had a good time, and that was it. Rather than you lost, and you're like, oh, but I'll just play another one. And whoa, but hang on, I'll just put another one, and then and then down you go. Uh, and yeah, I think the regulation is a good one, and they they are slowly catching up here in the Premier League. Where, I mean, if you watched a Premier League game on Sky Sports here in the UK five years ago, you would probably see about oh, you know, in the thousands of betting adverts and betting slogans and betting everything within a game, they've right. pushed that number down a bit, but it's still there. Um, so yeah, that's it's, that's another uh, uphill battle. I don't know which team it was, but they're actually you know, on their chest. I don't want to give it. There's a gambling company that's like their main sponsor. Um, I forget what team it was. Well, yeah, you'll find it a lot, lot more common in the lower leagues where uh, they don't have the gravitas to uh, sort of seek what I would call much, you know, blue chip sponsors. So they have to pick the basically anyone's wanting to offer them the most money. So they often end up with gambling companies. That's now being regulated out, so they might not be able to do that quite soon. But interestingly. There is a an industry that is very quickly taking up that space in the sport that is not considered gambling, but somehow is being pushed in exactly the same way. And that is some of the um, more nefarious sides of crypto. Um, there are all sorts of crypto companies popping up and branding themselves on everything and saying, oh, yeah, crypto is the future. And, you know, I personally am a bit of a believer in crypto, but very specific segments of it. It's not every coin is going to go to the moon. Um, so there's a lot of bad actors in crypto space. And a lot of them are, are, again, to bring this conversation the whole way around, a lot of them are sports washing and advertising through sports teams. Yeah, I can remember some of my, you know, um, golfing uh, colleagues, not really friends, people I know that during the pandemic, when there was no sports, they were they were so, you know, jonesing for gambling. They were, they were betting on weather, Ben. I mean, it was, uh, you know, hey, I hear in Phoenix, it's going to be 110 today. What do you think? You know, and they, they do an over and under. I mean, you know, you have a problem when you're gambling on, on weather. Yes. And, I, you know, I also think there's some safe ways of doing it. My, one of my favorite ones is 
completely detached from money, like because uh, there are versions of it with money, but no right. money version of um, fantasy league like sports. I love that right. where you make your fantasy team and you pick the team, and then if a player does well in real life, then your team gets points. I like that because there's no consequences if they don't get right. points, other than a laugh from your mates. You're not going to lose a thousand pounds if your team loses, and that I think is that safe space where you know you're watching it, you're watching a game, but there are benefits to you external of that game so one player does well in the same team versus another player and you do well in your team versus your mate but there's no there's no consequences and there's there's even this you know DraftKings are looking into this or sorry DraftKings are doing this row where they're trying to put fantasy um sports and and, and money together and they're it's also again gambling in, in disguise where you can you can pay these companies to get the rights to a player for your fantasy team and i'm like oh but now hang on that's gambling again because you pay them 100 pounds to get a player who then may or may not perform well in the real life and if he doesn't you lose money real money and i'm like oh. is fantasy it's huge here in the u.s with football with baseball it is absolutely there's so many people doing it is it very popular there as well it is uh particularly just the the official premier league um fantasy league which is quite a dare i say quite a basic league there's not it's not a very complicated scoring system or anything like that that's very popular here i actually play one called fan tracks and ironically i play it with uh, nine other guys from the usa because mm. i do think the us have this deeper relationship with fantasy sports than they have here and it's a very detailed website like you know players will get points from the number of corners they take or that kind of stuff um, wow. and it's great because for the super fans you know they can really engage with a sport like that um and yeah it, it, i've been playing this league with them for a couple of years and it's been really um i i maybe had this sort of pre preconception which i regret about people from the us not fully understanding like soccer as much as people on this side of the pond do that has been completely knocked out of this out of the water by these nine guys from texas basically handing you know handing it to me in fantasy league week after week so <laughs> very interesting and the way technology has been uh intermingled with 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 sport is uh, you know i i'm a big technology you know a technologist and you know the way they all wear the heart monitors underneath so they can actually tell where their heart rate is and what their you know vital signs are they're, as they're running the statistics of you know i've seen these crazy statistics like like de buena like his passes in the you know, in the penalty box, in the 18 box versus outside and what the percentage of goal. I mean, it's just been, it's very exciting to see that the way technology has been uh, introduced and just puts a different slant and even the video, the recapture. And uh, I wonder if you're a fan of like all that kind of technology move and VAR, what are your, what are your points on that? I mean, the one you mentioned about like the percentages and this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm going to start sounding like a broken record here, but there is such potential for good and there are so many bad actors trying to exploit it. Uh, the big example I'll give you is around the data of uh, uh, the percentages of um, players and how likely they are to succeed in certain points. Those are such cool bits of information because, you know, it is technology at its best and, you know, it's really good for the coaches. It's really good for scouts. It's really good for everyone of like, oh, every time this player gets in the box, he scores. Or every time this player turns the ball onto that foot, he scores, for example. Um, but then the, the companies that love that the most are gambling companies because it gives them the most accurate prediction models for them to you know, understand what's going to happen. And this is why, you know, the, the, the obviously hmm. not to labor on about gambling, but the house always wins in sports. That's really why the house always wins because they have better tech. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a hunch about hmm. this player or that player, the, the, they have historical data of, um, 
you know, hundreds of thousands of games about what happens in certain scenarios. And, you know, it is always like a probability thing. If, 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 if it happens enough times, then it'll go to the house. To your other point of, de- of uh, technology around VAR, I think like everything, this it, it can be a positive thing, but it's it's so delicate to manage it. Um, and the v- v- VAR has had really a lot of teething problems in the last couple of years. I think it's the best it's ever been in terms of it's quite quick and it's quite straightforward. But yeah, definitely about 18 months ago, there was game after game after game. There were these annoying debates and pauses and it was quite, it was quite frustrating. So for those who are listening, VAR is where they review... Uh, the play on a video system. Uh, we have that here in the NFL. We have it also in, in basketball. But, um, you know, you'll have the main ref run over to the side and, you know, watch the video and then make a call. And uh, just just a little catch-up on that. And it's fairly new in, uh, in soccer. One of the other great things I love about the EPL is that before the game starts, they have, you know, everybody kneels for, you know, 30 seconds of recognition of, of racism. Uh, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's for me that's a very a big tough one because I obviously think any uh, raising awareness or any action in that favor is um, a positive thing. I sometimes worry that particularly the the companies and associations involved are using that too much as a oh we've we've done our bit. Mm. Does that make sense? So like, it's a great thing that they do, and I'm glad they're doing it, but it's you know not enough. That that's that's just a first step in the right direction, and. You know, you'll hear at conferences and stuff, um, the league administrators will be questioned like, oh, there's, there's still this pervasive problem with racism in the league. What are you doing about it? It's like, oh, well, if you see we our players are taking the knee and stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. But that was, you know, they've been doing that now two years. Mm. And that was that was just the first step. There needs to be more of a systemic um yeah, top to bottom approach around this kind of thing. I like it when they uh, it often you, know, you hear ish, ish instances of racial abuse from fans in the stadium, but if they can catch it or get some kind of record of it, it can become a criminal offense and it can be prosecuted um, criminally, and those fans can get banned from the stadium and stuff. And I like that where there needs to be this consequence of this is not acceptable behavior. And unfortunately, a lot of it was baked into football and culture to begin with. You know, I wasn't around then, but I've read many a story and spoken to many of a person of you know even english soccer in the early 90s you know every time a player would debut their first black player there would be protests out the sta- outside the stadium so you can see the, the level of um you know inbaked prejudice that we are trying to remove from the game because it you know obviously has no place in the game yeah and that manifested horribly of course in the european final with italy where you had you know some of the black players that didn't perform particularly well for england and there was uh, there was terrible kind of uh, some of the, of course, a minority of the fans, but you did see that. And uh, that's something that we don't, we don't have the kneeling here for injustice. Uh, there was a whole issue here, of course, you know, of what happened with one, uh, with, with the quarterback from the 49ers. But um, I, your, your theme of sustainability and, uh, in sport and equality, it's such a beautiful sport, such a beautiful thing. But we have these these evils that we that we want to we want to squash and eventually remove from the game. With I'm an optimist. I hope we can do it. 
Yeah, and I, I like racism as a good example to use, but I, I'll reference anything like gender bias, um, uh, you know, fighting climate change. Sport will never fix these problems entirely. Sport is just a small part of, of the global ecosystem and, you know, social ecosystem. And these problems are global social problems that um, we need to tackle. Um, you know, I think my, one of my favorite stats is how little uh, emissions sport actually leads to in terms of climate change. But that doesn't really matter because you still have to look as as the stakeholders within sport we only have the ability to control our you know industry so we should still do that to the best of our ability and i i yeah to try and maybe maybe not on all days but on my positive days the way i like to think about it is sport will not fix climate change it won't fix racism it won't fix gender bias but it'll make it'll make it'll take a step in the right direction mm. um and exactly one of the first things you could do would be to really try and get rid of any form of racism whatsoever from from sport and then it's amazing how that can spill out into the rest of society and i'm actually working for um uh, a non-for-profit that is uh, trying to do that specifically around sustainable actions, trying to get fans to be more engaged with sustainability in terms of their match day activities, you know, get the bus to the game rather, maybe try and try eat some vegan food, this kind of stuff, just little actions. Mm -hmm. But then it's amazing how that ignites their um, their brain as to the rest of their life. So they go, oh, I'm going to be sustainable today to go to the game, so I'll get the bus. But then when they go to work on Monday, they're like, well, hang on, it would also be sustainable if I got the bus to work. Let me try that. And then suddenly the the the, the ball starts um, rolling in that in that better direction. So sport will not fix these problems, but it can be a wonderful catalyst to get things going. Yeah, very well said. And small incremental changes. We're not going to change everything right away, but these small changes hopefully will help. And there's lots of following. There's a huge population. There's a lot of money in sports. So I think, like you said, hopefully that'll... That'll be the catalyst to to make those changes. On the podcast, we talk a lot about discipline. I lost a bunch of weight. Um, do you consider yourself disciplined, Ben? Noel? Yes, and actually, that was one of the things I was most excited about when you invited me on your show. Was I've I've also had a bit of a weight loss journey, so I listened to some of your um, pieces on that, and it's funny how much similarity I saw uh, I saw in that. Um, and yeah, I, I'd like to say that I'm. <laughs> disciplined. I definitely think I, my definition of discipline can be quite varied. Mm. I try and be, dare I say, first and foremost, morally disciplined. Mm. Uh, and then that filters out to the rest of my life. But yeah, that does have some very strong um, uh, benefits for me in the long term. And I'd say one of the big ones is around health, where yeah, I, I'm trying to be healthy, um, both for myself, but even for like, uh, from a sustainability perspective, you know, mm -hmm. being unhealthy is not good for the planet. Going to the doctor a lot is not good for the planet. Eating too much of the wrong thing is not good for the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it, uh, the way I go about my day in terms of exercise and, and diet is actually just a little way of me expressing my own, um, mm -hmm. my own value system and my own control on, on how I want, like to lead my life. And it's funny how much of, how much joy I actually get from that. Very interesting. What made you start the podcast? Uh, it was, we kind of touched on it already, but it was, it was a little bit of that helplessness within the world of sport, but it was also a case of trying to bring together my, what I would call the, the juxtaposition between my passion and my sort of expertise. My expertise were very much in the sustainability space. I'd worked in renewables for a few years. Um, I'd done my master's degree in sustainable development. That's when I lived in Sweden. And yeah, I came out of out of my master's degree in, in Sweden in the middle of COVID, pretty much terrible time to start work. Uh, did look around for a lot of jobs. 
um, didn't really land on anything. And I'm like, okay, well, what, what do I really care about? What's my passion? And that was sport. Um, and I was like, okay, what, in what way can I bring my expertise to the world of sport? And the first thing I thought was, yeah, kind of sharing a lot of um, the insights I've picked up along the way with other people. And then also using it as a tool to get, um, you know, have conversations with people. And that's been a very, a very rewarding part of it. Um, and it's funny how it's gone. It's, it's, only, it's only about a year more just over a year old and it's funny how it's gone in places i wouldn't have expected it to mm. go i think probably still my most meaningful episode was with a woman called eddie delaney in australia in tasmania last year where she was talking about how she had used the sport of trapeze and being a former circus performer to teach children about like body autonomy and make sure they understand consent and this kind of thing and that that if you'd asked me before i started the podcast does that fall within my mandate i would have said absolutely not now mm. i'm just like Absolutely yes, and what a what a you know interesting and diverse and um, beautiful angle to look at something like this, and what a great solution. So yeah, it's been quite rewarding. I really enjoyed that podcast. The other episode I enjoyed was the one uh, the eating disorder, and uh, talked about BMI and how that's you know shouldn't be a uh, you know for athletes and for you know this this uh, this young woman had a you know eating disorder when she was young, and it's it's interesting how. Even the theme of discipline, I have, you know, a very wide variety of, of interests and likes, and I think you could just bring up discipline in any of those uh, disciplines. It's just like yourself. I think you, you, you're able to kind of horizontalize a vertical. With, with that with that focus um, yes and you know I loved having that conversation about the eating disorder because yeah. it almost made me aware not that I'd had a problem but I'd flown closer to that problem than I ever would have thought of in hindsight when she was yeah. discussing about how she needed to regain control of her life and how eating was a way of of, of um, expressing that you know how close is that to what I've just said what two minutes ago about how I like to gain control of my life with what I would call sustainable disciplined behaviors. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's like anything, it can be a good thing, but you can go, you can fly too close to the sun there and it can get, it can, um, you know, snowball into a dangerous place. And I do think it's, uh, down the other end of, um, of, of health and exercise, it can be the same of like, you know, never, they always say the old trope, never tell someone to exercise, mm -hmm. show them the value of exercise. Yeah. If you tell someone to exercise, they'll resent you. They'll be like, "Why does he want? Why does this person want me to exercise? They, they think I'm. They, they're judging me." There's all that negative enforcement versus showing them the value and the enjoyment you get from, um, and not just, for example, weight loss, because that's obviously a, a, a singular, not necessarily perfect metric. But you know, the endorphins, the 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 social bonding, all of the other stuff that comes with exercise. Show them that value and let them make the decision for themselves. Yeah, very, very good point. You know, as as a young man, a teenager, the punishment during soccer practice was go run, go do laps. And that's mm. terrible. That's terrible. Yep. I mean, so it's punishment. Exercise is literally punishment. And you don't want to, you know, combine the two because then you, you'll, you'll be resentful of it. And, uh, you know, there's other ways to kind of punish or reprimand uh, in in practice. What motivates you, Ben? Uh, very good question. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't really know how to, to phrase it, but I, I almost think that the macro motivates me first and then I try and bring it down to the micro. So mm. I, I definitely think the, these challenges we've just mentioned, like racism and, and gender bias and climate change, these things are sort of on my mind. And obviously these days with the media, you get a lot of it. Um, they're on my mind all the time and they can be sometimes quite you know, overwhelming. And 
therefore one of the ways I sort of, you know, get out of a, maybe a bad negative mental cycle is to be doing something about it. So that's kind of what's motivates me on a day-to-day basis. And this is, this is really proven true to me where, you know, if I have a week where I'm having a discussion with someone who you know, it's really got really great insight in the space. And I have that conversation, I upload that episode, I get a bit of feedback that makes me just much more motivated and feeling good mm-hmm. rather than just sort of sitting there and being like, this is bad. And this is bad. And this is bad. Cause you know, if you spend enough time on, on, yeah, on your cell phone, everything will seem bad. It will. Yeah, it certainly will. And that's the way it's set up by the way it, it feels like. Um, and how do you define success? Oh, I love that question. Um, and this actually came up in the in the in the eating disorder one about how we need to read it. Mm. We need to redefine winning. Um, I think we've definitely lost sight of what success is in 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 huge parts of society. Namely, often we put far too much emphasis on financial success. I do think financial sustainability and stability are important. You know, you need to be able to live and and um, uh, be healthy. Like, sorry, uh, to be fed, etc. But yeah, I think there are so many other. Um, objectives we can look in terms of success i do think health is is one of them in terms of you know you've only got one body um you you better look after it and that is physical health and mental health of course um you know they're very there are a lot of very very uh great physically healthy people who are um, mentally in 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 terrible places and we those people should be offered the same kind of help um i do think you know i need to think of the right wording i think if you get to a place in your life where you are happy and healthy and being sociable and helping others mm. doesn't really matter where you are on the financial or status uh, ladder you're doing you're succeeding that's how i'd phrase it um and that's definitely the kind of objective i'm looking for very well said ben i really really enjoy your podcast i i was looking forward to this and i'm so glad we talked i hope one day we get to uh you know, have a pint together and, you know, even at a, oh man, at a game would be incredible too. I would, I haven't been to any English premier game live and I I would love to. And as the world starts to open up, I hope to get over there and maybe we can get together and have a drink. Thanks so much for your time today. No, thank you. And uh, I particularly thank you for the uh, poignant nature of some of your questions. Sometimes I go on these and they, they beat around the bush, but you went straight for it. And I appreciate that. It gets the best answers, I think. And how can we get in touch with you? I'll put some uh, in the show notes, but how can people get in touch with you? Yes. So the podcast is called Sustaining Sport. The website is just uh, sustainingsport.com. On Instagram, I'm Sustaining Sport. On Twitter, I do have a Sustaining Sport account, but it's better to reach me on my sort of like personal account, which is benmole11. And on LinkedIn, it's also Sustaining Sport. So hit me up on any of those, both in terms of if you just have any feedback for the podcast or the work that I'm doing, I would love. And also any questions um, to any of your listeners, please reach out. I am literally just happy to have any of these conversations with anyone any of the time. Absolutely. And Mole is spelled M-O-L-E if people are interested. Uh, And of course, Ben is B-E-N. Ben, thanks so much for your time today. And I really appreciate it. I look forward one day, uh, you know, having being face-to-face and uh, continuing the conversation. You be well. Absolutely, Joey. And thank you so much for having me. Bye now. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
podcast information. The video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. It's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? Twenty-five dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pin's Discipline Conversations.